0: This podcast is brought to you by Florence Filter, the leading company in air filters. They care about your air and have been since 1971. Good morning, everyone. This is Brandon Matloff in Los Angeles. Welcome to the Stella Oak Mavens podcast, where we feature different mavens in different fields. A maven is an expert of an expert. They are the go-to person who you would want to ask all the questions to before making a decision. The purpose of our podcast today is help the consumer be more knowledgeable. Today, I'm really excited to host Rick Merrill. Rick is the CEO and founder of Gavalytics, a judicial analytics platform that provides reports and insights to attorneys in order to help them win more cases. Rick graduated from USC with a degree in political science and then pursued his law degree at his crosstown rival UCLA, go Bruins. Before founding Gavalytics, Rick served as a litigator, spending seven years at Greenberg Traurig, where he specialized in real estate. And today, Rick will be sharing his experience as a litigator and the decisions he made to get where he is today, and what inspired him to develop Gavalytics. Welcome, Rick.
1: Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's uh, an honor to talk with you today.
0: Thank you. So. Your unique perspective as a litigator must have played a role in inspiring uh, Gavalytics. Can you talk about how your experience shaped kind of your decision on starting this company?
1: Certainly, you know, like a lot of founders of of startup businesses, um, I was angry about a problem in my industry. struck me as a problem that needed to be solved, um, and so that that led directly to to this business. Because by the way, there's really nobody doing it <laughs> for, for the most part, and so um, so there was certainly a business opportunity. But, but to, to answer your question, in a, in a short fashion, I can just tell you that there was a, a a problem in our industry that really, really, really needed to be solved, and that's what we try to do.
0: So let me get this straight: you were at a big firm probably making very good income out of school. You were there for quite some time. So you gave it up to to start something that you saw as a problem, but really had no guarantee that there would be any success because it wasn't a business that already existed. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the big challenge is not only is this a new product, it, you know, it's it's a new product class. It, it's a pretty new concept for lawyers. To be able to study their judge in a, in a quantitative fashion, and, and we do this in many other industries or areas of life. You know, so like in sports, for example, there's this baseball statistics revolution and uh, all these other things where, where things are measured in a, in a sophisticated statistical fashion. Uh, but that really hadn't yet um, penetrated the area of law. And so you're right; it was a, a very big risk to leave a, an excellent, excellent job uh, to do this uh, to go try to start something. And so it's. It's risky and hard and all those things, but um, you know I'm, I'm fortunate that my wife is uh, <laughs> a real trooper and uh, you know, was able to convince her that it was the right thing to do, and, and it's been borne out. We've certainly had some, some early success over the last about three years, but, um, but yeah, the, the initial leap is, is challenging.
0: Did you have a support system from your, your, the rest of your family, your parents? Did, did they have a, a role in this?
1: Yeah, I, I did. You know, I'm fortunate to have come from a pretty business-focused family. My my father, uh, Rick Merrill Senior, is a notable real estate guy in, in California and in, in other states. And my my younger brother, Mark Merrill, is the founder of Riot Games, uh, the huge uh, multi-billion uh, multi-billion-dollar uh, video game company. Uh, so he founded that business about uh, gosh, ten or twelve years ago with another guy named Brandon Beck. And so. Uh, I, I've grown up around business, you know, and um, you know our family friends are all business people and all this. and so I, I was fortunate to have a lot of expertise that I could tap and financial resources that I could I could tap. And so certainly, without some of those advantages, um, it, it would have been far more difficult to to do what we're what we're trying to do.
0: So it sounds like the only ones that probably weren't super thrilled about this decision was your uh, colleagues or the people at uh, your prior law firm. Is that right?
1: Yeah, you know you know they they were pretty supportive. Uh, you know no, nobody was was against it per se, but lawyers as a group are pretty risk averse and so um, you know on, on the one hand, everybody recognized the need for a product like this, but on the other hand, people were sort of amazed that I was willing to take that plunge. Um, and I, I don't blame them. I, I mean, re, you have to be a little bit insane to go start a business no matter who you are because uh, the odds are are so against you just, just no matter what industry you're in or you know, no matter how good the idea is. Something I often say is that ideas are easy, and they are. Um, what's really hard is the execution of, of the idea. And so um, you, you you really have to have a high-risk tolerance no matter who you are, what industry you're in to go be an entrepreneur and start a business because the odds are really, really, really against you. The um, odds are definitely
0: <laughs> The odds are definitely the odds are definitely stacked against you when you're starting your own uh, company. That's without a doubt. Especially if you grew up, you know, going to school, then you went to law school, and then you you were at a firm for a long period of time. You hadn't been building necessarily the same entrepreneur skills that you would be using now. So I guess that begs the question. When you were in college or when you were starting out, um, right after school, was part of you always entrepreneurial? Were you looking for opportunities along the way or was it really seven years in, you kind of figured something out and said, Hey, let me, this is a passion I'm excited about now. Now I'm going to run with it.
1: Yeah. Because of the business background in my family, I've always had an eye on business and I, I spent five years working before I went to law school. So I graduated from USC, um, in 2001 and went to work for a commercial lender and then i worked for um, a holding company that owned a bunch of apparel brands uh, i, I, I um, had a brief detour in investment banking and all this and so you know i, I have some level of of um, financial experience and, and business background and i also was a business minor at usc um, not that that adds a ton of value but it's, it's certainly more than more than nothing and um so yeah it's always been on my mind and uh, like a lot of people working at big law firms um I certainly was looking at the exit you know one way or one way or another and so you know just this opportunity presented itself and it was it was too good to pass up
0: If you could go back to uh you know undergrad or even law school is there anything you would have done differently to put you in a faster uh, pace, position to do what you're doing now, or is there anything you look back and you're like, man, I wish I changed this about something I was doing earlier on?
1: I, certainly, I would have. I would have majored in business. Um, USC has got a great undergraduate business program at the Marshall School, and uh, you know, I got a little taste of that as a business minor. Um, so I instead was a poli sci major because so I, I always did, despite the business interest. I always did intend to go to law school in some fashion, but. Um, the the business major would have been a nice thing to fall back on if I didn't uh, opt for law school or or didn't enjoy being a lawyer. Uh, While I was in law school, really had a terrific experience. UCLA is an excellent, excellent law school. But if I have one regret, it's that I should have done the JD MBA program. Um, UCLA, like a lot of big universities, uh, has joint uh, degree programs. And it would have added just a single year to my um, my time there. And, and at the time I thought that I didn't want to spend another year at school. And, you know, I was already a little older than everybody since I had spent five years working. So I felt that that extra year might not have uh, been something I wanted to do, but in retrospect, uh, that was a mistake. I, I probably could have gotten in, I'd taken the GMAT and all that, but, um, so that would be one regret, but, uh, but it's minor. I mean, life's fine. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> I love it. Uh, so tell me about some of the uh, challenges that you've had, because I know that anytime you create a business, there's always odds are stacked against you. And there's things and hurdles that you look at yourself and you're like, can this business actually be a real business? Can I get it to another level? So so walk me back through a time where uh, you had a challenge in your business. I want to hear about that.
1: Sure. So there, there are so many Um you know, one one thing to start with is the challenge of, of, of writing the deck. You know, let, let's start at the very, very beginning. You know, so when I left Greenberg uh, in the middle of 2015, um, I spent much of the rest of the year uh, working on the deck. You know, so I wasn't working. You know, my wife's yelling at me, you know, the whole thing. And uh, spent a lot of time working on that. And, 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 you know, self-doubt starts to creep in. You know, oh, my God, is this the right thing to have done? I can't believe it. Here I am trying to... Write a deck instead of making money for the family, and you know all these things. And so, you know, being able to stay focused and stay on on task and on mission is is more emotionally challenging than I was expecting. And, and then the deck was finished. Uh, end of the year, 2015. We went out to market to go raise money. Uh, early in 2016, uh, we raised about two and a half million dollars in, in 90 days. Uh, we had a really great uh, early seed round. Uh, really just by virtue of the people we knew, so it was just sort of a a fluke that we were fortunate enough to know these people, but um, the challenge there was it was just me. I I didn't have a founding partner. I'm just a lawyer with a little bit of a business background. You know, I'm not a software engineer, Uh, so the the big challenge there is once the money was raised, it was sort of an oh-my-God moment, It's like, oh-my-God, now what? You know, we've got two and a half million dollars in the bank, and I need to go hire people, and so that challenge of finding our CTO was, was, was very significant. And, um, and interviewed 16 or 17 different people before we found our CTO who, by the way, has been the core of the business. And if there's any uh, potential entrepreneurs uh, listening right now, and I suspect for our, my, my advice to you is, is that your early hires are critical and hiring the wrong person a key key role could be fatal to the business and, and often you can overcome or sometimes you can overcome the wrong hire but if you're not fortunate you can't then it could be game over and, and for us uh, if we'd not hired the right person um, that probably would have been the end of the business um, because we had to go build a product it took us about a year and a half to build it if we had the wrong guy it could have taken too long or maybe i would have had to have fired up and started over and um, it, it could have delayed everything and we, we probably would have run out of money. We would not have been able to have raised a second round, which we did uh, earlier this year. And so just it is absolutely critical to to find the right people, uh, whether or not it's a, a co-founder, you know, just for these, for these early critical uh, employee roles, you must, must, must have the right people.
0: I want to take you back to something that you just said that is so critical in uh, building a company is it's not only finding the right person, but what you said was that you did 16 or 17 interviews before finding the right person. How did you know? I mean, it's obvious now at this point, looking back, like you got to find the right person. How did you know that at the time? You were just an attorney with a little bit of business experience.
1: Yeah, fortunately, you know, in, in tapping my, my personal and professional network, um, I was able to talk to other people who had started um, tech-related businesses who were not themselves tech people. Um, and, and so my brother comes to mind. My my brother, Mark, um, is not himself a software engineer. He's just a bright business guy who had a terrific idea along with uh, his co-founder, Brandon, um, about a video game they wanted to build. neither of them were coders, neither of them were, um, you know, had the necessary technical skill sets So they had to go hire people. And and they had some early uh, misfires in some of the people that they hired, and and it could have been fatal. Uh, You know, Riot Games might never have existed um, if they hadn't overcome some, you know, very early uh, talent problems that they had. And so just in speaking with them um, and, and other people similarly situated, you know, it really impressed upon me the importance of getting it right, and uh, one thing I would also say, just an easy pro tip here, is that um, the way I was able to even find 16 or 17 people was I have a, a good friend here in town who is a uh, uh, one of the head recruiters at a company called CyberCoders. Uh, guy's name is Jason Kuna. And CyberCoders is one of several businesses out there that, um, that helps uh, companies find tech talent. And so he's a, a headhunter. And uh, through my relationship with him, he was able to start sending me people to, uh, to interview. And um, what's funny is he was about ready to fire me despite our friendship because I'd churned through so many candidates. <laughs> you know, so uh, you know, fortunately, he was patient and we were able to find the right person. But uh, the nice thing is you know, resources like that exist. You know, just go find a recruiter if you're trying to find people. And you do have to pay them a fee, you know, it's not cheap, but, um, you know, at least for me, there really was no other way. I mean, I wasn't going to put an ad on Craigslist or something, you know, right. to find a, a critical component of, of the business.
0: I think, um, as you, as you talk about it and as you explain, like, you know, it's not just that you did a bunch of interviews. You also did a bunch of research on your own to really figure this thing out. You asked your brother, you had other mentors and other people you looked up to and, and you did research before you went to market. And so that gave you the initial lift in order to be successful. I'm curious if there was any other uh, mentors or any other people you surrounded yourself on an ongoing basis, even today, to help you get your business to the next level.
1: Sure. So one of the things that we did early on was we formed what we call an advisory board. And so it's an informal uh, group of business people here in LA, uh, all of whom are investors in our business. To have different um, areas of expertise. And so, for example, um, uh, we've got a very notable uh, investment banker on the advisory board. So, he helps us with finance and accounting issues. We've got a very notable uh, lawyer who can help us with legal issues and things like that. My brother's on the advisory board. We've got a, several other people with different areas of, of expertise. And so, you know, I, I think any business leader needs to be very self-critical and and look at yourself and say, OK, what do I not know? And the answer is probably a lot. And and that's OK. You don't need to know everything. You can just go hire people uh, who do know those things. And so, you know, you, you don't need to be a do it, a do it all type of person. And in fact, you're pretty likely to fail if you, if you try that. And so. So for me, I knew where I was weak um, in terms of my, uh, my skill set and was able to go plug that those holes with, um, with, uh, with uh, good advice from people who had, had been there, done that. And one thing I can tell you also is when I was uh, raising money um, in that whole process, I, I got lots and lots of advice from lots and lots of really bright, experienced people uh, here in LA. And the one that struck me the most was uh, came from a very very notable business guy who I can't identify, but he's very uh, very very, very well known and he told me that the biggest challenge I would have would be managing my emotions. And uh, I almost laughed because I, I'm not a particularly emotional guy and I told him point blank I'm like, listen, that, that advice doesn't really apply to me, you know thanks. Um, you know, let's talk about something else, but it turns out he, he could not have been more right. You know, one of the biggest challenges that I think any business leader has is, truly is managing yourself and, and managing the daily ups and downs. And at a, at a small new business like ours, um, you know, you have ups and downs in the same hour, you know, and, and so just being able to, Steady yourself and, and believe in the team and the mission and vision and all this um, is, is more challenging than I was expecting. And it's, and it's something that uh, I, I suspect just about any, any business leader has, has personally experienced. And so um, for you entrepreneurs out there listening, you know, re- realize that's coming no matter who you are. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a violent set of ups and downs and uh, just got to persevere.
0: I think uh, one of the, the biggest challenges on, on managing yourself is doing it by yourself. Obviously, you had your your wife to support you and, and brothers and some other mentors. Uh, but then in comes the value of having a, a personal or professional coach. And maybe on the next uh, podcast, we'll put a professional coach in there to kind of weigh in on, on some of your your comments. The next thing I want to do is really uh, go into this rapid fire round. I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions. And I just wanted to your uh, knee-jerk reaction that, to the way I, I phrase some of these things. So, real quick, share one of your uh, personal habits that you believe has contributed towards your success in uh, business. Exercise. What's your favorite book? The Hobbit. Oh, nice one. Uh, best financial advice you ever received. USC versus UCLA, who wins this year?
1: That's a ridiculous question. Of course, it's USC. All right.
0: All right. Thank you for playing the uh, rapid fire round. So I want to get a little bit into the the content of Gavalytics. So can you tell me, you know, what, so if if I'm an attorney listening to this or, even you know, a business owner to to sort of speak, could you tell me like, why do I need it? Like, why do I need to know about the judge?
1: Sure. So what Getolytics does, so we're, we're a state court focused uh, product. So we, we analyze in great detail the California Superior Court uh, judges throughout key counties in the state. And, and the reason we do that is, as just about any litigator will tell you, is that judges vary wildly from one another. Judge Brandon has had a different set of life experiences and judicial philosophy and legal education than Judge Rick. And you really shouldn't expect them to make the same types of rulings, even on the same facts and law. And lawyers know intuitively that judges vary a great deal from one another, but really until recently, there's been no way to measure that and know in advance, in a granular level, what the judge's tendencies are. So that, that's the value proposition that we have. We tell you in advance what the judge does and why. So, um... So we track, for example, how fast and slow the judge is. We track the judge's experience level with different types of cases. We track the rates at which the judge grants and denies uh, over 100 different types of motions. We track the uh, types of case law the judge tends to cite in their rulings on different things. We track uh, how often they receive what are called peremptory challenges pursuant to uh, CCP 170.6. Uh, we track what they do in bench trials. There, there's a lot that the product does, and um, it's products like this or this sort of concept is often referred to as money ball for lawyers. And so, for any baseball fans out there, they'll, they'll know really what that means. And so, it's just if you're not familiar with the term, it's just really a a, a a statistically sophisticated way of of viewing the world, and that's what we do here. We can really tell you in advance what the judge's tendencies are, and then a then a skilled lawyer can know what to do. Um, you know, you wouldn't try to persuade a judge who doesn't like issue X uh, in the same way that you would persuade the judge who does. You know, so just there, there's all these different decisions that you can make or not make as a result of having this information. And so it really, you know, our whole goal is to make good litigators better, to help them um, win more cases, win more business. Because by, by the way, one of the principal ways that this product is used is to impress clients. So, you know, when you're, when you're trying to convince IBM to hire you to represent them in a, in a piece of litigation, if you can come in and say, look, here are all the facts we know about Judge Brandon. Here, here's our strategic and tactical decisions we're going to make specific to Judge Brandon. Um, you really set yourself apart as a lawyer at law firm. And um, that's what we're hearing from a, a lot of our uh, Amlaw 100 clients, that they, they like this thing uh, in large part because of its uh, ability to generate business.
0: Was there an aha moment when a law firm agreed to you know, purchase your, your software or your plan and you said, okay, I really have something here. I've made it. Now now I, I know I can take this to another level.
1: Yeah. So we, we launched the product in September of 2017 and uh, it was pretty limited uh, compared to where it is now um, in terms of its geographic scope. So we're, we're right now California only. Um, and that's going to be changing. We're going to be launching in some other states uh, later this year. But um, uh, in September of last year, we were in two counties, I mean, just two in uh, in California. But despite that limited scope, we we pretty quickly signed up uh, three big law firms here in town. And the Daily Journal, which is the daily legal newspaper in California that everybody is familiar with, the Daily Journal did a big cover story uh, about us in January, and they quoted one of our clients as saying that this thing is the best thing I've ever seen. It's unique. Uh, uh, you know, we used it to pitch a client. It blew them away, and we got the client uh, as a result. And so, to see it actually work as intended and see that story be printed in the biggest legal newspaper in the state uh, was really a, a watershed moment for the business. And, um, and that that was one of several hints that yeah, we we might be uh, onto something here.
0: What's the vision uh, long-term?
1: The vision long-term is for this to be ubiquitous. Um, I think it's insane and intolerable for lawyers to not know detailed information about their judge in advance. And that's how it's always been since antiquity. Um, you know, going back to Cicero and all this, you know, lawyers just would guess about the judge or they would you know, rely on anecdotes or rumors about the judge and that's it. And that's wrong in this era of data and um and uh, cheap computing power and storage. And so, so we want every lawyer in every case in the country to have access to this sort of data. And so, so we want it to be literally ubiquitous to where it would be utterly unthinkable to uh, engage in a, a piece of litigation anywhere in the country uh, without in advance uh, having Gabalytics data about the judge that you could use to better represent your client. How did the
0: judges feel about this?
1: this and so we as a business have First Amendment rights we can say whatever we want about it you know the courts can't stop us um, but um, but that said we certainly don't want to get into a fight with the court system for any reason because we would certainly argue uh, with the court that uh, or we would we would make the argument that we're actually on the same side as the court you know everybody has an interest in the orderly consistent efficient administration of justice we do the court does etc we, we would argue that this sort of thing actually uh, further[s] that goal, and so um, when the Daily Journal article was printed, we actually got a phone call the next day from a judge in uh, downtown LA. He was very gruff on the phone and said, oh, "You know, I, I, I want to talk to you guys. You know, send somebody in." And so I, I sent our our VP of sales, and I, I was too afraid to go. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, the guy, it turned out, could not have been nicer. Uh, told us, you know, point blank, "Love what you're doing. It's great for the court. It's great for litigants. It's great for society." You know, the, the guy was raving about it. And, uh, and then we showed him the data we had on him. And, and what was great is he actually agreed with it. Because you know, We were concerned that maybe he wouldn't believe the numbers or something, but he did and, and went on and on about how, uh, um, you know, this is, this is great. And then he asked to see data on some other judges, you know, from down the hall, which, which was pretty funny. And so, uh, so, you know, it's, it's a small sample, but, um, you know, at least that judge and some of the others that we've spoken with, um, really haven't reacted particularly strongly. And I, and I should point out, too, we, we did not invent this concept. There's there's one or two other businesses that are a few years ahead of us that, that roughly do what we do, but limited to the federal court system. And so, you know, they've been out a few years longer than we have. Um, and so, you know, they, they haven't re- received strong reactions either. I mean, this is really just sort of a new spin on what on what lawyers have been doing since antiquity, which is trying to get inside data about their judge so they can have an advantage. And so this is just a much more sophisticated version of that. And, and so anyway, you know, to, to my knowledge, no judge is, is truly uh, upset about this. And even if they were, they, they couldn't stop it.
0: I love it. So um, before we wrap up, uh, do you, would you like to share, you know, if someone's interested in learning more about Gavalytics or an attorney is sort is, or their firm is curious about, Uh, this software and how it can help them? Is there a resource you can point them to or or what's the the best way for them to get in contact with you or your firm?
1: Yeah, certainly. So the the name of the business again is Gavalytics. So it's G A V E L Y T I C S. The the website is gavalytics.com. There's, there's a video demo on there. It shows you how the product works. If you want to speak with us, you can email info at Gavalytics. You can email me directly. I'm just Rick at Gavalytics. Our office phone number is 310-314-0179, so we are, we're pretty easy to reach, and uh, we sell primarily to Amalaw 100 firms, which for the non-lawyers uh, listening, that's the, uh, the list of the 100 largest law firms in the world, uh, but we do also have prices and packages available for uh, smaller and mid-sized firms, and so we, uh, we try to uh, make this stuff available for everybody.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for participating today. This has been a Stella Oak Mavens podcast. We empower you, the listener, to take control of your life. You can follow our Instagram at Stella Oak Mavens for updates and more information about the podcast.